Welcome to Graceview. Welcome to our worship service. Um, we do have a few announcements uh, tonight at the church in uh, Millington. There is the uh, Reformation service at 6 p.m. at Richland ARP. Everyone is invited. We also have tomorrow night the, uh, the Reformation Day Harvest Festival for the children. Uh, and then... In the middle of November, uh, Pastor Chris is going to be at a uh, conference in L.A. It's the November 17th, 18th, and 19th. It's going to be on YouTube and Facebook. We'll also have a Thanksgiving dinner on the 24th of November at 4 p.m. And there's a Christmas parade in uh, December the 3rd, uh, also uh, December the 11th, and a hayride on December the uh, 11th. Uh, the Christmas parade is uh, South Haven is given that. So, any other announcements? Anyone? All right. Welcome, people of God. The call to worship today, this is your order of service, so we'll just follow it straight through from the beginning to the end. <clears throat> it's from Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we praise you and thank you that you have drawn your people together this day. That from many places, Lord God, and many backgrounds, we have come together to be one people established upon your gospel. We praise you and thank you, Lord God, that you've given us this great invitation, this honor and privilege to come together and worship you, to lift high your holy name. We thank you for these things and pray that everything that happens in this service would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please rise as we sing hymn number three in your hymnal.
and flip open to the front of your hymnals. We have the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now we'll sing Psalm 23, which is number 38 in your hymnal. Usually we would recite a psalm. Today we're going to sing it. So if you turn to number 38 in your hymnal. The Lord. Acapella. That's why I didn't throw one at you. You didn't see coming. Like a ninja around here. The Lord's my shepherd.
in your handout, we're at the Westminster Larger Catechism. I'll read the question and you read the answer. Question 164 asks, How many sacraments hath Christ instituted in His church under the New Testament? And if you notice, there's the references to Scripture there. Question 165, what is baptism? Baptism is the sacrament of the New Testament, wherein Christ has ordained the washing of the water in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, to be a sign and seal of engrafting into Himself a remission of sins by His blood, and regeneration by His Spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the heart is baptized solemnly admitted into the spiritual church, and entering into an open and professed engagement to be holy and holy of the Lord. Question 166 asks, Unto whom is baptism to be administered? Baptism is not to be several things in this service that might be unusual to some of you. Uh, you know, this thing about singing, it's, it's because it's Reformation Sunday. You know, we, we tend to celebrate this on October 1st, uh, 31st, or the Sunday closest to October 31st, because 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg and brought about through time and hundreds of years of development the freedom of the church from total domination by the mere traditions and whims of human beings. So one of the things that they used to do, of course, in that old Scottish kirk from which the Presbyterians descended 500 years ago, you know, it was, it was hard to get a piano in those days because it wasn't invented until the 1700s. And getting a pipe organ, well, that was just for the rich folks, right? But they did have the bagpipe, didn't they? Which... We don't got, but uh, <laughs> in those days, they only sang the psalms and they only sang them a cappella, and it was beautiful to them. It's a tradition which has been largely lost, but is going through a massive resurgence right now, mainly among the young people, because the young people love that idea of going backward to get back forward. You want to go forward and do new and vibrant expressions of worship, but you don't want to lose the past. You don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, no baptism pun intended. So this might be the first time you've ever sung an a cappella song, but I guarantee you, just by looking around the room, your ancestors sang these psalms in this way. And it was beautiful to them. 
At this point in the service, we do have another thing that might be unusual to you. We have the confession of sin. Not where we go into a box and we confess our sins to any human being, but we unburden our souls before God. We have a traditional way of stating this in churches like this. We have sinned every day in thought, word, and deed. We are not a righteous people without sin, but sinners in need of the grace of Jesus Christ as much as anyone else. And so at this time, we'll have a time of silence for you to confess to the Lord your God alone your personal and private sins. People of God, also by way of corporate worship, I ask you, Christian, do you believe you've sinned every day in thought, word, and deed? We do. Do you believe that if not for the righteousness of Jesus Christ on your behalf, you would have no hope in life or death? We do. And I simply declare to you what the primary message of the Bible is from beginning to the end. That our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, your sins are forgiven and you are reconciled to a right relationship with your God. Lord God, our Father, we want to remember before you the particular petitions of this church, this people of God called together by you. We want to remember the Smith hearts in the loss of Marcia, Lord God, We pray, Lord God, that you would just bless them and build up their hearts in confidence and hope during this time of loss. Also, Michael, his daughter, and Ramona's daughter, Elizabeth and Saguk, we pray, Lord God, that you would just bless them and be with them during this time and build them up. For Jim and Teresa Smith, we pray, Lord God, that you would bless them, Lord God, and strengthen him that you would bless Jim with health and well-being. We continue to pray for Nancy Kerrigan, Lord God, that you would just bless her and strengthen her in the name of Jesus Christ. For Chad and Jen Moore and family, especially for Chad, Lord God, that you would just bring about his whole restoration from cancer, that all of the different medical benefits he's received, Lord God, would be effective in strengthening him and returning him to complete health. We also want to pray for Dan Cobb, Lord God, who's had a recent bout with cancer, Lord God. We just pray that you would heal him completely, that you would build him up and his family in strength and well-being. For Mike Perkins, whose daughter is pregnant, we pray, Lord God, that you would bless her and that child, that you would keep them safe. For Jackie's son, Chris, who's doing better, we praise you for that, Lord God, but pray that you would restore him completely. For children coming to tomorrow's celebration, Lord God, we pray that you would bless them all and that perhaps this might be an opportunity for us to minister to them in some small way. Traveling mercies for Ryan and Megan coming back today, we pray, Lord God, that you would bless them and keep them safe in all their endeavors. Lord God, there are many unspoken prayers and things that are written on this paper that are not for public 
communication, but you know every one of them. And you also know the hearts of all of the people here and the people listening online, that there are many things that are on our hearts and minds. There's fear in regard to our physical well-being and our bodies. There are several families, Lord God, that are home today with the flu. We pray that you would bless and restore them all, Lord God. Protect them, captivate them, Lord God, and bring them back to our number, healthy and full of well-being and spiritual strength. We also pray, Lord God, for presidents and princes and kings and those in positions of power and authority that they would guide according to your royal law so that we might have peace in the land. We pray, Lord God, for your church here and around the world that you would bless her and keep her safe and that as your gospel is preached from pulpits all around the world today, Lord God, that many would come to know you as Lord and Savior through the power of your spirit and increase our joyful number. We thank you for these things, praying the prayer that your son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our next song of worship is in your order of service. It's a call and answer in the old style of the songs itself also. So there will be one part sung by the choir and you will answer that part. If you haven't heard the song before, you'll catch on pretty quick. Please rise. Only if you're comfortable. <laughs>
be seated. And now is the announcement of tithes and offerings. We have the little box in the back. And if you would like to support the ministry, please do. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, You are worthy, beyond worthy. You are rich in mercy, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. You're rich in mercy, and Your grace is abounding. We thank You that You love us and have brought us together to be a family, to be a church family, and to love one another. And Lord, thank You for that. Lord, everything that we have comes from You. There's not a single thing that we do not have. You have provided everything for us. Everything. And Lord, the little bit that we give back to support this church and to support the ministries, we ask that You would use it, magnify it, multiply it, so that it would be effective in reaching the hearts of those that You bring into the kingdom. Lord, we ask that you would bless this church, bless these people, and thank you for the things that you have given us so that we can give back. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. People of God. strange need of doing two sermons today. So I hope you don't have anything to do later today. Just kidding, they'll be very short. But of course, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we're going to celebrate one of the other two sacraments, baptism. Now, uh, the reason that we always have to explain this is that we know, we're very conscious of the fact that we live in a very Baptist-intensive area. There are way more Baptists in this area of the country than there are old-school Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Anglicans, Methodists, and other groups like that that baptize babies. So 
you know, what most churches would do is just try to go right by it as quick as possible and not cause, you know, a lot of clutter and muss and fuss. But at the same time, that does kind of rob an opportunity. You don't want to do something like this and just leave somebody no explanation of why it's happening. It can be very confusing to people. I should probably put this on. So we go back to Genesis chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. I know that we have a kind of antiseptic view these days, basically given to us by the scientists, the sciences and a lot the last hundred years of sociology, that there really is nothing organic or deeply meaningful about offspring. But there are a lot of reasons why God made them come explicitly from our own bodies. And in the past, we didn't understand that it was an aspect of the father and an aspect of the mother coming together, that God from that made a third person that is neither the father or the mother. You have to remember that when Abraham was called by God, he had one thing in mind, will I have offspring to carry on after me? And then Jesus, in the book of John, says that Abraham saw his day and was glad because Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that was supposed to come to him. And so you, being the child of others and having children down through history, not only pleases God, it's God's focused method for the administration of humankind in history. He passes down the faith from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. When we think about it, the church... 2,000 years ago was Jesus walking around in the desert with 11 guys. Now half the planet, billions of people, call themselves by the name of Christ, mainly through this method of ordinary generation. In this, God says to Abraham, Behold, my covenant, chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 4, is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but it shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations come from you. I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring, and throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you your offspring after you and the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession to be their God. Now, of course, also, there was a sign of this covenant. Now, in the first generation, the sign went to everyone there, every male person in the house or bought with money. Everyone born was given the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. From that time on, the sign of the covenant was only given to children for about... 1,500 years. Very rarely did ever an adult get the sign of the covenant. It was given to the children, the offspring of believers, all the way until the time of the coming of Jesus Christ. And we find out some things about that that we didn't know only in the New Testament. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7.
And here it's talking about principles for marriage. We're actually going to do a sermon on marriage next week because we have the celebration of the 50th anniversary of Howie and Jan coming up. So we'll still be in this chapter. Uh, Do not deprive one another except by agreement. Now I say this as a concession, not a demand. For the unmarried and widows, I say it's good for them to remain as I am. To the married, I give this charge, not but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. If she does, she should remain unmarried, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever, he consents to live with her, he should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her children, her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. This is where we get this idea, this principle that comes down to us from history that's intuitive in the mind of every Christian. I've been at many services, especially because, you know, I was raised in the SBC, where they still bring the baby, the child, up to the front, and they lift the child up before the congregation, and they pray for the child, and they say, God, bless the child, and they dedicate the child to the Lord. Now, what we tend to call that in the Presbyterian churches is a dry baptism. Because they're doing the same thing, just not with the water. Intuitively, we know that the child is God's, that all of our offspring have a special place in God's sight. But it's a real place. It's not just in the mind. God considers the child holy because it is born to a believing parent. The organic nature of parents to children coming down through Scripture should be obvious to us. David's offspring, Solomon, and all the line of the kings. Adam's offspring, Moses' offspring. We see this very serious relationship between parents to children and parents to children and parents to children. And then we get to Christ and all of a sudden we think to ourselves, all of the children have now been excommunicated. They're no longer part of the church. Now think about that. All that time the children had been a part of the believing people of God, then Christ comes and they are no longer. I've told you before, I was shocked when I found out as a teenager that I had never been a member of the church and had not been considered by the church to be officially a Christian because I had not done a profession of faith and been baptized. So we have to remember a few things about this. Number one, the vast majority, more than 90%, of the Christians that have ever lived and professed faith were all baptized as infants and never baptized as adults. More than 90% over 2,000 years. It's a little bold to say none of their baptisms were valid. 90% of Christians were never actually baptized. Right? Another thing is that today, the vast majority of Christians that live on earth are only baptized as infants. It's still the vast majority. We can't, you know, around here, we're promiscuous about baptisms. We accept baptisms from Methodist churches, baptisms from Baptist churches, baptisms from Church of Christ, baptisms from, wait a minute, Roman Catholic. We still accept that, right? <coughs> First generation of reformers like Martin Luther and Calvin and all those guys, they were all baptized as infants and as Catholics, and we accept that baptism as valid because we don't think ours has any superpowers. Notice that in that part that we read earlier today, it said to the visible church. This is the visible church. The invisible church is in here. 
Now, I can't know that I know that I know the way that God knows if you're a member of the invisible church. If you have faith in Christ, you are a part of that Catholic, universal, invisible church, which is in heaven and on earth. But we do a visible external sign of this in this service. So the children at the church are true and real members of this church. They're not part members. They don't have all the privileges of adults. But at the same time, they are real members of the visible church of Jesus Christ, representing their membership in the invisible church of Jesus Christ. We're also going to administrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's just bread. It's just wine. We don't have magic here. We can't change it into the body of Jesus so you can crush it between your teeth. We can't do that for you. But it is the visible sign of the invisible reality of Jesus Christ who suffered and died for you. In the same way, this visible sign that we do here is the visible sign of the Holy Spirit being poured out, placing the child in a status of being holy to the Lord, even upon the faith of even one believing parent. Amen? Amen. Just to explain to you why we do it. Not actually trying to convince anybody. I have found that nobody can convince anybody of anything, especially in the era of CNN, right? Uh, It's more one of those things where God convinces some people of something. And if he teaches the heart, so be it. And if he does not, so be it. That's not fatalism. It's just the fact of it. So at this time, we're going to do the baptism. We could have the family come forward, please. Now, you'll notice that the way we do this, it also might be a little unusual to you. The vows are not given to the child. The child doesn't have the ability to do the vows. The child doesn't have the ability to understand the vows. But the parents have faith in Jesus Christ, and they are in covenant with him. And the covenant that they have made with God is passed on to their child and to their child's child and to their child's child's child. So I ask you parents, do you renew the vows which you made when you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and entered into the full communion of His church? We do. do. Do you acknowledge that your child is a sinner in need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit? We do. Do you claim God's covenant promises on this child's behalf, and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for this child's salvation as you do for your own? We do. Do you now covenant and promise and humble reliance on the grace of God to bring up your child to love God and to serve Him to that end that your child may become to commit his life, her life, to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? We do. Now, because this is a covenantal relationship with the visible church, it actually includes all of you also, including all of you watching online. Do you remember the members of this congregation undertake with, all, with these parents the covenant responsibility for the Christian nurture of this child? Amen. Like the oil that was poured down on the head of Aaron, like the Holy Spirit that descended in the form of a dove. Addison James Tatum. You're very tall. 
Anybody that disagrees, you can just think of it as a wet dedication. It's not that bad. Uh, Anna, could you come forward and we'll sing the next song? In your order of service.
You had all the big matters of the law, but you passed by the weightier matters, which are not written in the byline. Mercy, kindness. So in this, we are talking about justification by grace alone through faith. We've got those big solas of the Reformation, right? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, which we can only hold on to if we use the Bible alone to the glory of God alone. But that it's by faith alone is generally the most disturbing. It was the most disturbing to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, and when it came to the Greeks, it was the most disturbing to them too. You have to remember that the Greeks and the Romans, they had some great gods. In many ways, they might seem even better than our gods, right? Their gods were strapping with power. They had huge musculature. They could throw down lightning bolts from heaven. Often, they got in trouble with some earth women and had some babies. And that's where you get Hercules and all those stories from, right? They were zealous. They were immoral. But they were powerful. And the idea of a savior, the son of God, coming without power, laying himself down as a sacrifice for the sins of those he loves, did not fit into their theological constructs at all. And face it, we've all got them, right? We've all got this idea in our mind of what God is supposed to be like and what God is supposed to do. But there isn't anything in the natural man or our natural ability to come to God that really fits with the fact that he saves us by grace alone through faith apart from our goodness. At the same time, you will never truly apprehend the gospel of Jesus until that is the central fact of your faith in life. I'm not saying that you're not supposed to be good people. I'm just saying you're not very good at it. Right? Also, when you grasp this fact, being good becomes an easy thing. One of the things that we've lost in the modern contemporary church that used to be central to the diet of the Christian all through the Middle Ages and all the way through was the concept of virtue rather than legal obedience. Now here, we do those things. We read the Ten Commandments. You know, I was talking with uh, Calvin Beisner the other day. when he, was teach- he taught in a seminary for ten years. And the first test he gave to all the seminarians, they came in and their second year of seminary, they came to his class so they could learn Christian ethics. And he would give them a piece of paper and the first day they were supposed to write down the Ten Commandments or get as close as you can, Right? He said that in those 10 years of seminary, he only had two or three students ever able to tell him what the Ten Commandments were. These men went on to be ministers. By the time they were done with his class, I'm pretty sure they knew at least seven, right? But think about it. That is the law. And so we want to give you the law to give you the opportunity to love God through obedience to his laws, but not to save yourself through them. I have found that the more people struggle to be obedient to the law to please God, the less good they are at it. And the more they recognize themselves as a sinner before God in need of God's grace, and so just by the gratitude for the grace they've been given, they strive to love God and love their neighbor, they have the most success. You kind of have to take the shackles off before you're free to serve. So we repeat this message again and again, and perhaps at this time of the year, we focus on it more exclusively, that you are justified before your God on the basis of the legal obedience of Jesus Christ and not your own. You're not saved because you're good. You're saved because Christ was good for you. You will never be good enough for God, but God has been good enough on your behalf. On the last day, you will not 
die for your sins, no matter how dark they may be, because Christ has already died for you. And the life that you live now, you live in Christ, so that the life you had before, it's gone. It died on a cross 2,000 years ago. In this, Emily, if you wouldn't mind coming forward, we're going to sing, uh, by the way, you know, Why Be Still My Soul? You you all know we sang it a couple weeks ago, right? Uh, This was actually written by a beautiful Lutheran lady a few hundred years ago who had been a nun that had been in a nunnery. Now, you know, there are all kinds of nuns, right? In that day when they were coming out of Roman Catholicism, they had all these nuns and they didn't know what to do with them. So Martin Luther married one and she was awesome. She became the de facto administrator of the city of Wittenberg. She was incredible. Her name's Catherine von Bora. Read a biography of her. She will blow your mind. But she was in that kind of nunnery where they were locked in for their entire life. Now here's the thing. People that dedicated themselves to God in that time of misunderstanding, so they went out among the people and helped the poor and the sick and encouraged the people in spiritual well-being. That is a wonderful, beautiful thing. Some of the apparatus might have been wrong, but their basic intention was not. You know, the idea of nuns are all just bad ladies wrapping people's knuckles with rulers and stuff. That's not what they were like. But at the same time, the idea of the nunnery, where they locked them into a room to pray all their lives, and they basically lived a life of slavery, that was incredibly common. When people had a daughter and they couldn't get her married, they took her to the nunnery. And one of those nuns that escaped from there, she was, became Katharina von Luther. And had a powerful effect on her world. Well, another one of those ladies that came out, even when she came out of the nunnery, she felt like she's a little too old to get married at this point, like the other nuns were doing. And to follow that course that they found through the Bible where they find a good man and they worship together and they produce children and they live a life. Uh, So she still dedicated herself to God and worked on behalf of the church all her life. And one night she just picked up a pen and she wrote this song. So it's a gospel song. It's about suffering. People usually play it at dark times, but I find it to be just full of light. Another song from that time written by Bach who wrote every song that he ever wrote as an officially uh, uh, licensed uh, music minister of the Lutheran Church wrote O Sacred Head, which we'll sing now. Did I put it in there? Do we have the number in there? Let's just sing the first two lines of O Sacred Head and then we'll uh, take the Lord's Supper. It's number 142 in your hymnal. Please remain seated.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is the Apostle Paul talking about the Lord's Supper. As we remember, he was not there for that event. He was busy being the prosecuting attorney against Christians and overseeing their execution when the Lord's Supper was taking place. But afterward, the Lord came to him, shined a light upon him, gave him the light of life, and commissioned him to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. So in verse 23 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. People of God, please come forward and take the elements. When you all have them, uh, we will uh, eat and drink together.
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. In the same way, also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Please rise and we'll sing the third verse of O Sacred Head Now Wounded, number 142. bless you. This is one of my favorite parts of any service, because it's not really me that's blessing you. I'm just a stand-in for the Lord Jesus Christ. A visible representation of an invisible reality, the same way we've done in these two sacraments. But the blessing is only effective for those that have believed in the promises that they heard in the Word of God. Now, I myself, I can be wrong about my interpretations of it or stories I tell about it or commentary I give on it, but the words themselves are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ through the pens of the prophets and the apostles. So, if you have believed these promises here, they are for you. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen. Amen.
Thank <laughs> you.